Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thank you, guys. Here we are for round two with David. And uh, at least in, in setting this up, it'll be a, there'll be some similarities to yesterday that you will notice. A big difference is I don't know what I'm talking about in this one. <laughs> Uh, because th this one is, I, I just don't have good answers for. We, I mean, I, I'm going to see this as something that we commiserate together about. All right? And, and as we go through, I mean, I'll, I'll lay out some thoughts that I have on the topic of David as father uh, and, and more about just being a Christian father in general. Uh, but as far as answers and uh, ironclad advice, Forget it. Just, it's this one. Well, you'll see. You'll see. So let, let's start with this. I've already kind of spilled the beans a little bit, but answer, or complete this sentence for me. David shines as a father when he does what? When he fasts for, fasts for the baby. All right, there you go. He's fasting for the child of oh, this. Right. That uh, and, and and why is he fasting for this child? <clears throat> because he feels responsible, maybe. Yeah. And he wants to the child to live. Yeah. The child to live. That's and the child dies anyway. I also think it's because he's realizing God is in control, and he's just putting all his trust in God. Well, and until that outcome is revealed, yeah. Yeah. he moves one way or the other. Yeah. Now, the, the, of course, the, the thing that bothers me at least, I, I should say bother, is that, it, it's like some of you were saying, we are not in control. That's what this, that story show, shows. Even though we would say he does the best thing that he could in those circumstances, which is to pray and fast over his child, the child still dies. And we I say that because we live in a world that wants people to think if there really is a God, the child wouldn't die. And as hard and as painful as it is, we have to admit, no, there's no guarantee. Seems like David accepted. He got up, washed his face, and went on. Feed me now. Yeah, yeah. I, I did what I could. Okay. Now we, well, but let's keep that in mind because that's right after. This, uh, everything we're going to be looking at today is going to be kind of starting at that point. You'll see why. Here, I hear something else. Put this in, in a broader perspective. Here we go. You're looking for, if you wanted to hold up from the Bible a human example of a good father, who would that guy be and why? I would choose X because. Who would you pick? Share with one another. You know, give yourself 30 seconds here. Just come up with a name first. Job. <coughs> with, with each other. Three, two, one. Alex Rebeck says time is up. So, Job, you, tell me why Job. What, what do you see about Job that makes him a, a good father for us all to emulate? He was concerned about his children. He prayed for them. Left them up, prayed for them. Because he knows that their children, they need help beyond what he could give them. And he asked God to. Yeah. Even though he, unlike David, he can say, I've done nothing wrong. 
He still, on top of that, prayed for his kids. Yeah. Not that he kept them from getting killed, but still, it, he, he did the right thing. Okay, now, okay, yes, sir, go ahead. No, no, no. I, Joseph, which Joseph? The father of Jesus. And why that Joseph? Because when he had the chance to kind of let, let nature take its toll or its course on this son that was not born of him, but was going to take the first place <coughs> in the inheritance, he chose instead to sacrifice for this son rather than let that son be killed. Okay. All right. So he, he was willing to make, even though he's not the biological father, <laughs> he did what a good father should, I guess we'd say, and that is sacrifice something about his himself, his status, or whatever for the sake of the child. Alright, let, let, let me push this a little bit further. What, what I'm thinking of here is um, well, you'll, you'll see in a minute. In, in, any others? I, I, I don't want to cut others off before I get going here. Randy? I don't know his name, but the loving father in Luke 15. Oh, semi-fictitious. <laughs> yeah, who might be a god figure, but yeah, but the, and what makes him good? Well, not the part about giving the kid everything, because I don't know if I can do that. But the part about I know it's he's better than I. But uh, the part about the son comes home before all the blah blah blah. He's like, no, no, I love you. If you're my son, you always were. You always will be. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Which. Yeah, and you, you'll see that kind of characteristic portrayed by God and, and some of the things we're going to look at today. There's another one. Yes? Abraham. Why Abraham? I mean, you mean the guy who tried to kill his son? <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he was showing the son that you obey me. Yeah. And so he was showing that he was It'd be interesting to talk to some child psychologists. <laughs> 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 How they might evaluate Abraham. But I agree with you. I mean, here's, I, I've often wondered, uh, how did Isaac look back on that event? How did he and his father process that, if you will? With Thanksgiving. In the years, in the years to come. Yeah. How did Ishmael feel about Well, I don't know. He got cast out. Ishmael probably wishes his dad had been a little bit quicker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he no, trusted, the son trusted the father. Yeah. And the father and, and okay. Abraham's father <laughs> trusted David. Yeah. Yeah. Another one here. Jacob. Jacob. How so? Certainly loved his sons, but certainly loved Joseph. Now, okay, if we were to, to evaluate this in terms of outcome, can you trace the outcome from the father through the children? In other words, can you judge by the way the kids turn out and use that as a criterion for evaluating whether they're a good or a bad father. I think it's I got a big head and shaking back on the back row. Uh, not completely. <laughs> Proverbs 13.1, uh, a wise child, a smart father, a stupid child, sad mother. So mm -hmm. there's a choice factor involved maybe. Yeah, yeah definitely is. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that I think every single one of us wrestles with is at what point <laughs> in our children's <clears throat> development is it no longer the onus placed on us and instead placed on them. All right, I mean, that's, that's part of what we struggle with here. Well, you know, Tim, yeah. given the subject at hand here, we look at Solomon's life, and I don't know whether I'm prepared to say that his success was based on his father on earth or his father in heaven, which... I mean, clearly he was blessed by God, but, you know, the nation of Israel prospered greatly under Solomon's reign. Mm -hmm. And at least early on enough, he was wise enough to choose to ask God for uh, judgment, not for riches and fame and honor and so forth. So, yeah. so at least early on. <laughs> you know, early on, um, Solomon did pretty good early on, and clearly God blessed uh, 
him in the kingdom yeah. during his time. Yeah. Now, I don't know but, how but, much but, but, but leave out the last chapter. Yeah, let's, let's, right. let's do it the Chronicles <laughs> way, yeah. right? Uh -huh, exactly. Do it the Chronicles way. Just leave off the last chapter. Yes, sir. Yeah, I believe that every single human being carries own <laughs> sinful nature. Yeah. So this is why we have to look beyond biological relationships. Mm. We have to look beyond biological relationships. That's going to really tie in with one point I'm going to make. Yes, sir. David. Now, I think a good example as an answer to this question is Samuel. I'm backing up even further, is his sons, I think if I'm remembering the text correctly, were described as worthless men. They did mm -hmm. not follow in his example. Right. There's no evidence that Samuel was a bad father. Mm -hmm. But applying that to our circumstance today is, I think we all know faithful Christians who were good parents, but whose kids just went the opposite direction for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you might be able to some degree use the kids as a criteria, but at the same time, not necessarily because there's the element of choice. Which way are they going to go based on what their yeah. parents taught them? Wow. Okay, wow. It, it, you, you see why I don't have just a clear path to follow mm -hmm. here? Yes. We're, we're talking about a very, very, very complicated issue. One more and then I'll go on. Parenting has to be measured by input, not outcome. Mm. It's what the parent does. But boy, it's hard for other people to, to, you know, to see a bad outcome and not look to the parents. <laughs> you know? Okay. So let me go on a little bit more here. Yeah, so we, we, here's where we, we talked about yesterday. I just want to show you there's kind of two sides to this. And I'm really, really generalizing here. But yesterday, we talked about what, what I would call David's, as king, you can talk about his official responsibilities. And boy, he does a really good job in terms of his official responsibilities. That's why the, the author of Kings several times says, okay, this king was pretty good. He was like his father David. Not quite as good in this way, or yeah, just as good in that way. But David was held up as the, you know, the ruler, the, the standard, the measure for a good king. But at the same time, you, you know, in terms of personal character, well, there's a lot of good stuff there, but there's a few blips, right? If you want to call adultery and murder a blip. <laughs> See? And so, as, as Randy Harris started us off this week, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about human beings. Right? And that's in, in all cases. So in, in terms of being a father, it's very, very similar. You have what I call their social responsibilities, and you have their responsibility of shaping the spiritual character of their children. Now, I think David, in terms of his uh, social responsibilities, most of the time, he's really good. Now, what do I mean by social responsibilities? Does he provide food and shelter for his family? Yeah. Does he try to provide guidance for them? I think so. You know, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good guy for the most part. And yeah, we're, we'll look at one story, the one about Amnon and Tamar, and I think there he, you know, it's kind of like uh, Chris was talking about last night, you know, he took a step back when he should have taken a step forward. So that's, that's going on in, in David's life. Now, here's what really just makes me pause. I say it haunts me. It haunts me. Is as I'm thinking about this, what's going on in the back of my mind as an elder in a church is this bit that comes out of Paul's instructions in Timothy and Titus. You know? He, uh, talking about elders here, what does it say? He must manage his own house well and see that his children obey him because... What does he go on to say? If someone can't manage his own house, how can he manage God's church? Shouldn't that apply to a king? If he can't do well in his own house, he must have believing children. If, if you can't pass on your faith to your kids, do you qualify to be a king of God's people? 
And so that, that keeps nagging at me. Okay? Yeah, that's, that's a big part of what's been pushing me all this time as I've been thinking about this is, shouldn't we expect more from someone like David? Maybe not, based on what Randy said the other night. You know, maybe he's as good as... Yeah, what do you think? question, something that just ran across my mind. Yeah. God wants it all. He doesn't necessarily want kings. Well, we, we talked a little bit about that yesterday. I, I, I do think there's differences between elders and kings. Uh, and, and maybe, just to take a little bit further, the, the problem with kings, or one of the, you know, if you want to call it um, problems with the institution of kingship, is it supposed to be passed on father to child to grandchild. And that can be a problem. Rather than... Like with elders, it's like every generation you got to earn that way. Okay, and I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. A lot of wisdom in that. Okay, yeah, great, great point. Um, so here's kind of where I'm going, and you can just see how general these things are. But here's just a couple of things, and I could have gotten others, but here's a couple of things that I'm getting out of my own study and reflection on this. Number one, being a good father, as many of you have already pointed out, being a good father is no guarantee that you're going to have good kids. Okay, we could go down the line. Every single one of you, you can think of someone who you think was a great father, and you look at their kids. Like I, I think of one guy who was one of my teachers at, at ACU back 30-something years ago, and he talked about how in his family he was the youngest of five boys, and the other four boys all left Christianity. He's the only one. His father was a gospel preacher. He himself had done preaching and now was teaching. But he was the only one from you know, among his siblings that held on to the faith. So does that make his father a bad father? Yeah, see, see, we, so there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. That's one thing. The other thing is, as we're going to see from God and having somewhat to do with David and others, a, a huge, maybe I shouldn't say the most important, but an important skill that every single father needs to develop is forgiveness. Now, what I mean by that, and we can have a long conversation at some point maybe about this, is you need to <coughs> learn how to do forgiveness in a healthy way. Think about that. What is a healthy way of forgiving? What is involved in that? All right? It's not just a free pass, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Uh, think about David's faith for a second. You know? We, we talked yesterday about some of these passages. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. God looking for a man after his own heart. Uh, chapter 16, verse 7, that Randy, talked, Randy Harris talked about Tuesday night. God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. If you go down to verse 18, this is a rather strange verse if you think about it. Kind of like the second thing that is said about David is, somebody comes in, Saul is looking for a singer. And somebody comes in and says, oh, I've got a good singer for you. There's this guy, the son of Jesse. He's a good singer. He's also a mighty warrior and a really brave guy. And by the way, the Lord is with him. How do you know that already? Wow, he hasn't done anything yet except tend a few sheep. Killed a lion or two. Yeah, he's killed a lion and a bear. Now, my question is, oh, and then there's the... The story, 1 Samuel 17, that's in the David and Goliath story. As you're preparing for that, as David speaks in front of Goliath, and again, this, this was uh, brought up pretty well last night by, by Chris Smith talking about the David and Goliath story, how much David focuses on God in what he says. That shows a lot of faith in David at a very young age. And my question is, how did he learn that? I wish we had stories about who it was that taught him to put his faith in God when he was facing danger. I'd, I'd like, like to find out it was Jesse. Then we'd have a great example of 
of a father instilling faith in his son. But it could have been David's mother, who's never named, never mentioned in the story. It could have been some of his brothers, although based on the way they're dealing with Goliath, I have my doubts. Maybe it's some other relatives. Maybe it was some of David's neighbors. Maybe it was someone like a Samuel. We don't know. Uh, I, I say this because I have a strong hunch with some of the kings later on that it was prophets like Isaiah who were instrumental in developing faith more than, than coming from their, the king's father. It came from someone like a prophet who was working alongside the king. And, and, and that, that says something about, you know, how, how does someone learn faith? Sometimes it's not me working with my kids. Sometimes it's our youth minister or somebody else in their life that has a much stronger impact on their faith than I do, for whatever reason. That's just, I see people nodding their heads. Yeah, you've all seen that. You've experienced that. Yeah, yes. The one thing that comes into my mind is that bottom question. You know, David spent a lot of time as a young boy, a young man, whatever, by himself. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't just learn shepherding no. just by going out with some sheep. And, you know, somebody's teaching you that. And I wonder if someone is also teaching him faith along the way. I, yeah, I don't know. We're not told. I wish we were told. So. Come here. Come on. Oh, you're going to die on me, Mr. Battery, aren't you? So here's just about David, his father. I say the census data. Okay? If you look at the passages in Second uh, Samuel five, over in First Chronicles, what three? I think it is three, four, something like that. I should have put it up here. You, you have lists of David's wives and children, and it says, "Oh, there's also concubines and their kids besides." Here we go. Seven wives, twenty kids. Wow. <laughs> He's got plenty of time on his hands. To raise all these kids and teach them the way, this, you know, I, I'm looking at these numbers and thinking, wow. I, and, and, and by the way, this is like 19 boys and one girl. So I wonder if some of the other girls are not mentioned. But he he could have uh, two baseball teams and a bat boy to boot from his own kids. That's when I think about the time that it takes, to, you know, to be with kids, teach them the way that they should go. How do you, how do you have this, this large of a family and do that? It's, you gotta have help. You gotta have help. Uh, you hope that big brothers are helping little brothers learn some things. You start off with the big, I mean, that's kind of one of the things my dad did was he, he really focused on my <coughs> oldest brother and did a great job with him and that helped then my older brother helped my dad with me and my little brothers as we're, you know, growing up. That that sort of thing I think goes on. But it's not just that everything doesn't fall on the shoulders of the dad. Right? You can have help there. Now, as far as details, someone's brought it right away. You know, when you're looking at David being a good father, the first one here, the child. We don't know the name. But the child that is there just a little while and gets sick and after several days passes away. And you have David fasting over this child. Right? That's the first time we have any detail at all about David's interaction, David's fathering of his children. Then you've got Amnon and Tamar. I'll say a little bit about that. My, you talk about a low point. In, in his uh, fathering career, I, I think you're, you're seeing some, some holes in it right there. Absalom, what a tragic, tragic story. <coughs> and then with Solomon, as we're going to see, it's really only at the very end of his life, or I should say stories from the end of his life, that we read about what David is doing, how he's interacting with Solomon. Now, I'd like to think, I can't prove it, there's no talk about it, but I'd like to think he was doing this earlier on, but we don't know. See, it's just that the silence about it all is something I, I, I wish 
weren't there, but it is. But, yeah. Now notice this. This is with David. Notice God and the example he gives. He makes one comment. We mentioned this yesterday or mentioned this story. Again, we're back in uh, chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God is saying, I'm going to make an eternal dynasty out of you. And, you know, you wanted to build me a house, David. You wanted to build me a temple. I'm going to pass that off to your, your son. We're going to delay that. But notice, he says, I will be his father. He will be my son. And then he makes one other comment. He says, you know, when he does wrong, I will discipline him. And he talks about, you know, such and such a way. But, he says, I will not take my love away from him the way that I took it away from Saul. <coughs> so th that to me is a, a, an example. This is one of the reasons why I say forgiveness <laughs> needs to be such an important quality for a father to have. Is because no matter how hard you try, you're going to have to forgive your kids at some point for something that they have done. Now, how you do that, the attitude with which you discipline them, as you should, you should guide them, but the attitude with which you do that and how you follow up on that, I think is of utmost importance. They learn so much from that. And we, boy, we could spend a whole three-day class on proper ways to forgive and go forward. Now, we're going to see some negative, some bad examples, I think, as we go on with, with David here a little bit. But notice this. See? What is it that keeps the relationship between God and David, David's family, going? It's God. It's God's love. It's God's loving forgiveness. Generation after generation after generation that keeps this relationship going. And that's true with us, too in our relationship with God. And that needs to be reflected then in how we relate to others, including our own children. Uh, the own little, I, I don't remember where I first heard this, but I like this variation on the golden, golden rule. Do unto others as God has done unto you. And I think that that you know, is very powerful in this type of situation. <coughs> Do unto others as God has done unto you. So come back, come back. We're not there yet. Where are you? Yeah. Here's something I've, I've thought about a whole lot. Maybe it's because we didn't hear these stories. When I, when I went to Sunday school, I really didn't hear that much about David and Bathsheba <laughs> until you got into middle or high school, you know, middle school or high school. Uh, but you hear about David and Goliath and maybe him becoming king, and then, oh, let's talk about Solomon for a while. <clears throat> but there's some really important stuff, I think, in the latter part of, of David's life. And, and in, in my research on David, I've seen two different ways of explaining what is going on at this time. Here's David after you've had uh, his sin with Bathsheba, after he's uh, conspired in and caused the death of Uriah, He's been confronted by uh, Nathan with this. So then he's told at that point, David, okay, you've apologized, you've repented, God has forgiven you. But the things that the prophet said were going to happen to David because of his sins, those things still happen. I put that under the general category of God disciplining David. But how does David react? What is going on in David's mind? Where is, what is the state of his heart during all of these years? And, and there's, there's, I see two ways of, that, that, way that people explain this. Uh, one way is to say, well, what David is doing is he's showing that he's humbling himself, he's accepting the discipline of God. Because as bad things happen, he says, well, I guess, you know, God is punishing me because that's what I deserve. <clears throat> but God is not coming right out and saying, this is why I'm doing it. 
there's other evidence though, and I think pretty strong to say that what's happening in his heart is even though he's heard that he is forgiven, he's still riddled with guilt. He still feels humiliation for what he has done. And so he doesn't feel like he has the moral authority to step forward, as Chris was talking about last night. Uh, I, I, there's, I, I didn't put it up here, but there's, there's one example. Of, well, let me, let's do this. Let's go on this way. Yeah. So notice, why doesn't David discipline his own children right after he's been told he's forgiven? So the, the, the very next chapter, right after Nathan has said, you're forgiven, etc., etc. Now the child dies, the first child dies. All right. The very next chapter, you have this awful, awful story of David's oldest son, Amnon, lusting after his half-sister to the point of tricking her, manipulating everything, setting it up so that he can rape her only to find out as soon as he has raped her, oh, he didn't, doesn't love her at all. And the text says he, he hates her even more than he loved her before. I know why I never heard that in Sunday school. We're talking R-rated stories here. What does David do about it? Well, he's mad. But he doesn't do anything. And the question is, why not? Is he simply accepting, well, you know, Nathan said these sort of things were going to happen, so I've just got to accept it. Or does he feel like, I should do something. As a good father, I should. But who am I? What right do I have based on what I have done to punish this? Now, Randy. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you want to say that <laughs> in the best? That's what I was, the whole idea that he was struggling with. I did these things. I was told these consequences would follow. Now my life is playing it out. What can I do about it? And so, I, yeah, I get the whole feeling that... So just a, a woe. Yeah, woe is me, but yeah. who am I? Yeah. Yeah. See, it, when you talk about, I, I use the terminology social responsibility. He has a social responsibility to his daughter Tamar to protect her and to avenge what has happened to her. That's his job, <laughs> and he just sits there, mad about it, right? Until then Absalom comes along and says, well, if daddy's not going to do it, <laughs> then that responsibility falls to me. And so he does it. <coughs> and it says that, yeah, so now David is consoled, if you will, about what has happened to Amnon, but still he's got to, what, hold Absalom. He doesn't really do anything. Absalom runs away and David just says, eh, Let's just hope the problem goes. I don't know what he's thinking. He doesn't go away. Yeah, so I mean, go into a little bit more detail. He doesn't avenge Tamar, which really, somebody's got to do something. And so Absalom, in their culture, he's the man who steps up and does something. But then that gets him in trouble. Because now he has killed someone. So he runs away for a while. There's in the story in chapter 14 where it's like David is totally immobilized. The country is wondering, where do we go from here? The king is not leading anymore. He's just moping. So he gets this woman. Joab gets this woman who goes in. She has her own, kind of like Nathan, she has her own fabricated story that parallels and comes to the same outcome. As, anyway, if you don't know the story, go read it. But what she's doing in this story is saying, David, wake up. You've got to step up and be a father here. And in this case, that means reconciling with Absalom. And he says, okay, we'll bring Absalom back home. He does that, but once Absalom comes back to Jerusalem, he won't go talk to her. 
until after Absalom causes some, <laughs> some disturbances, finally, finally, David says, okay, okay, come on, give me a hug. We're all made up. Not a very strong uh, example there. <coughs> now, then, here's what I was leading up to. You get to 2 Samuel 15, and at, at the beginning of 2 Samuel 15, there's a little paragraph that I think is very, very telling. It says that Absalom is meeting people at the gate of Jerusalem. And as they're coming up, the, some of them are coming there for the, the purpose of going and making an appeal to David to resolve some conflict that they have back home. And Absalom cuts them off at the pass at the gate and says, well, you know, I really feel for you. I think you're right here. But David the king, he's not doing anything. Boy, I, you know, if I were king, Absalom says, if I were king, I'd for sure take care of this. And it says this is the way that Absalom got a following behind him to lead a rebellion. And I think the reason why he's doing this is because David is not taking care of his responsibilities. Because I think it's because he's feeling still guilty. Because he's not taking care of his responsibilities, the people are feeling like we're going nowhere. There's just stalemate in the country. We're going nowhere. Let's get somebody else. And so before somebody outside of the family comes up and takes over, this is why I say it's a preemptive rebellion. I think Absalom makes the move before anybody else does to keep it in the family. All right. Of course, that leads to two or three chapters of rebellion ending with Absalom being killed on the battlefield by Joab. And all David can do is weep and mourn. Hmm. Some of the most powerful, the most uh, grievous words, grief-filled words. Oh, how I wish I had died instead of you. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of regret, a lot of regret in those words. All right, so I wonder, is there a connection between... David's struggle here about how to discipline and forgive his own kids and between his own acceptance of God's forgiveness. In other words, if he had really accepted the forgiveness the way that he should have, would that have placed him in a better position to deal with his own children when, he, when they needed his discipline and forgiveness? Something to think about. Tim, yeah. Can you go back one more time? Sure. Want uh, that as well? Yeah. I, I, I think maybe I'm wrong, but we tend to read Psalm 51 as a psalm of maturity. Uh, you know, created me a clean, you know, and, you know like he's pouring out. And, and uh, um, um, do, you, do, do, you, do you read that more as, a, as an unresolved pouring out? Like, God, please do this, but I don't really. I, yeah, I don't know. I probably that I, I, I mean, that's sort of an initial reaction, you know. Yeah. Please cleanse me, purify me, all this kind of stuff. But it's like you just can't let go of the sense of I have failed. Even though I'm forgiven, I don't know if I have the same status in the eyes of God that I did before. We say that that God forgives and forgets. And I, I, I think maybe we shouldn't take that too literally, and I've got more reasons why I've written about this. But at the same time, we need to realize if we are forgiven, it doesn't mean we're, we're forgiven and now we are three rungs down the ladder lower than we were before. No, we're right back where we were. So, boy, it, it, it's hard to forgive ourselves. It's hard to forgive ourselves. Um, yeah. All right. So now, later on, we've got to move here. Um, talked about David with Solomon. The only places that I can find where David interacts with Solomon, they're primarily in Chronicles. There's a huge section in Chronicles that you don't get in Samuel. 
where David is making all of these preparations for uh, you know, providing the materials, the people that are going to be in charge of building the temple once Solomon becomes king. Now, mixed in that, there's a few passages in here, and you can, you can look these up and read them, where David is also giving spiritual direction to, to Solomon. And, and I summarize it all in this way, just for the sake of time, we'll summarize it. He tells Solomon, be sure that you keep the laws of Moses, the statutes, the ordinances, the, the words of Moses. Observe those, keep those, guard those. Make them a part of your, your way of life. Be strong and courageous. You know, like they were talking, again, talking about last night, it means stepping forward. <laughs> you, you can't lay back, you can't hold back <laughs> about living out your faith. It takes courage. All right? Seek the Lord. That's a very common phrase in, in Chronicles. Seek the Lord. So when you need guidance, Go to him. Go to him. Nobody else, no other God, no other counselor. Go to him. And then, as we've seen from Deuteronomy, serve the Lord with all your heart. Serve him with a willing mind. Make that your inclination. So he says that, again, four different times here to Solomon. I wonder how late in David's career, and at what age is he saying this? I hope he's been saying this before. You know, and this is just sort of the official declaration of it, if you will. Uh, just one good example. But, but this is the sort of advice he's, he's giving. Okay? Now, a similar thing then comes uh, at the end of David's life, as he's on his deathbed. We mentioned this yesterday. He tells Solomon, come on now, be strong, be courageous, be a man. In other words, man up here. Uh, be resolute. Be resolute. And again, follow God's laws. Okay? Now, it's interesting, right, he follows this up with instructions to Solomon to take care of two or three individuals that David should have taken care of while he was king, like Joab and a guy named Shimei. I have a whole section that I'm skipping on this guy from the, 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 the family of Saul named Shimei, who was not nice to David, but David said, let him go. Now, so again, I wonder, in his words to Solomon, are we seeing humble humility, humble contrition? Or are we seeing someone on his deathbed who's saying, oh, I guess God really is going to fulfill his promises to me now that I see Solomon's going to be on the throne, and now I've got the courage once again. And again, I've read people that go either one of those ways. Okay? I think you can tell I tend toward the second, but I may be wrong on this. All right, we've got about 15 minutes. I've got a few more things to say here, and then we'll open it up. Yeah, for Solomon now, notice. <laughs> what is Solomon like as a father? Well, he gives lots of great advice. Read Proverbs. Lots of great advice. Ecclesiastes. The deal is, did he ever, we don't have any story of him sharing this teaching this to his children. And if you look at Rehoboam, his son, the one who succeeds him, it looks like he didn't hear a word of it. <laughs> but just because you say it and say it doesn't mean it's going to sink in. Yeah, you know, oh, this is where, again, I wish we had more information to know what or the other influences were affecting the lives of, of some of these people. Right? So you, you got that. There's so much of it. Listen, listen, Solomon, listen to your parents. Listen to your mother. Listen to your father, what they're telling you. Yeah, dad, yeah, right, right, right. All right. Um, now, notice this. I, we could have gone through the entire uh, line of, of David. I just did the, the end. Okay, here's, here's the last seven or eight kings. Um, king Ahaz, you start there in 2 Kings 16. Bad king. He goes and he, he, uh, he sees the way that they uh, set up worship, that they, the kind of altar that they have up in Damascus, and he makes a copy of it and sticks that in the, the temple in Jerusalem. No, you don't do that. Somehow, though, he's succeeded by his son Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, he's, I think, here's where I think that Isaiah the prophet may have had something to do with this guy. Because Hezekiah 
you know, he faces a really huge challenge when the Mesopotamian Assyrian army comes and surrounds Jerusalem, and it says that Hezekiah put his faith totally in God. And they characterize him as the most trusting of all the kings of Jerusalem. Wow. And so I give him two smiley faces and a halos, right? <laughs> but was Hezekiah a good father? I don't know because the guy who succeeds him, Manasseh, is described as the worst of yeah. the worst bad kings of Judah. Yeah. They don't get any worser than him. How does that happen? And then Manasseh is succeeded for a couple of years by a king named Amon, who is killed by some of his own people, and then succeeded by an eight-year-old <laughs> named Josiah. And he is said to be the most righteous of all the kings of Judah. He's the only person who's described as you know, doing it with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Wow. That's what we've all been waiting for, right? He is succeeded by two sons and a grandson. No, I guess three sons. Three sons and a grandson. And every single one of them is said to be total jerks. Right? Two of them last for less than three months. The other two are about 10 or 11 years. But they're all bad. So, wow. All right, so here, here's what I get from that. Despite what scientists may tell you, faith is not an inheritable trait. <laughs> you ain't born with it. As, as much as we'd like to say, oh yeah, here's you know, this gene, this faith is a part gene. of your DNA, right? No, it's not there, there isn't one, okay? And second, is you can't program it. Uh, you know, I, I love these lectures where we have people coming in saying, "Hey, here's what we're doing in our church right now. It really seems to be working well, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Good, but realize that ten years from now that might not work, or a hundred miles away in this other town that might not work. So we, you know, we keep trying to uh, discern, to, to get the help of God and other people. But there is not one surefire way, even within one family. You know? We've we got to keep this in mind. No two kids are alike. So whatever is going to work for your oldest child will not work, perhaps. It might work, but there's no guarantee that it'll work for number two. And what works for those two might or might not work. That's just the way. They, I, I love this quote from Margaret Mead. Just like everyone else, we're all unique. Now, why do I say that? It's so that we don't beat ourselves up too much. Sure, we're going to be like David at times and just weep over our kids. It'll happen. Don't give up. Keep it, it, maybe what you've been trying for the first 10 years ain't working. Try something else. Don't give up. We just keep trying. And, and maybe what it's going to take <laughs> is bringing somebody else in to be a mentor. Uh, I, I thought about it at one point making this whole thing about what's the proper way, how do we go about computing, if you will, what's the proper amount of time to give to your job versus to your, your kids. You can set that up all you want to, but you guys know, <coughs> as ministers, as, as you know, female, male leaders in the churches, you know things come up. And you, when someone comes knocking at your door or giving you a call or sending you an email, you can't say, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is such and such night for my kids, and I cannot stop 
to help you at this time when your child your child has just you know gone off the deep end and wrecked the car and I'll talk to you tomorrow we're not that's just not life you can you can try to set things up but oh, anyway so one final if it's any consolation Somebody pull out your Bible. Look at Hosea 11. You should know this text. Certainly you know one line from it. Okay? Somebody start reading. We won't read the whole thing, but start reading. And let us hear the words of Hosea. Hosea is famous for having a, using his own marriage as an, an, a metaphor to talk about the relationship between God the husband and Israel the wife. But he's also got something in here about God as father and Israel as a child. What does he say? Yeah, start in verse 1. God loved Israel and Jacob as a father loves Israel. saying here I was a good daddy I taught them how to walk when they got hurt I was the one who picked them up and said it'll be better I was the one who doctored them I was the one who provided for them I led them with cords of kindness I was good to them and what do they do they rebel against me they refuse to repent of their bad ways. So, how would you rate God as a father here? <laughs> if we're using the criterion of how their kids turn out, wow. So if it's any consolation, so, yeah. So, now, what did David say about Absalom? If only, yeah. And God did. God did. No guarantee we're going to be perfect. But if we will accept that forgiveness in the right way, and if our kids will see that, I think it'll help a lot. It will show them faith in action. And you just hope that they will learn. I mean, <laughs> Israel didn't learn all the time. They should have. Now, if you had kept on reading, at some point in there he says, how can I give you up? He's talking about handing them over to the Assyrians, about just punishing them. But he says, how can I give you up? Mm. Undying love. Undying love. Even when your friend's saying, oh, give up on them. 
Your kids, you know, some kids are just rotten apples. You can't give up on it. So you, you mentioned the, the father in the story of the prodigal son. That's our father. We got about five minutes here. What? I mean, that's that's what I got, folks. Yeah, David and Bernard. What we got? Um, just a quick question, going back to earlier. Uh, you talked about healthy ways to forgive your children. Um, I'm a new father. My wife and I have a three-year, almost three-year-old at home, and so I was just wondering if you could give examples of what are some healthy ways to forgive our children. Well, and it's it's really. Not so much forgive as um, it it does involve forgiveness, but also proper um, uh, discipline. What's the measured way to do it? What's the appropriate reaction? Uh, Here, as myself as a father, I really had to fight to, to fight against just being mad at them at the moment, and overreacting. I mean, think of how just when you're telling your kids, don't walk out in the street, and if they start to do it, how do you react? How strongly? Okay, so I mean, that, that's, that's just one part of it. I think another big thing for me is don't keep bringing it up. If you've really forgiven them, <clears throat> don't you know, remind them of it the next time they mess up. Well, you're tempted to. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Okay. What other advice would some of you give? I mean, that's, that's just the first two things that popped in my head. But I just had a question. In selecting elders, at what point do you consider that child an adult able to make his own decision and it doesn't have anything to do with today? Okay, so if, let's, let's just hypothetically take David as an example. Knowing how Solomon ends up, would that disqualify David? No, because that didn't happen until after David was gone. And yet, <laughs> I, I, there's no. We're always growing, aren't we? I mean, we're always growing. Yeah, yeah. But, and and, and so now here's another part of it is, in, in some, in, at least in my experience, sometimes what it is is, okay, here you are, you're, you, we're thinking about making you an elder of our church. Your kids, are they grown? Yeah. Do they go to church? Yeah. Where? Oh, well, not, not the Church of Christ, they go to the Methodist Church. Well, then they're not qualified. Is that what he means? But see, in the minds of some people, that's what they... So, see, now I'm playing professor. You see that? Oh, there's all these little... You, you have to use prayer every time. You wisdom from God. What, what do we see overall in the life of this person? If, if their children are not attending church, why is that? Is it because of the way that their parents raised them? Or is it something that has happened where they have made wrong choices after they've left home? I mean, that, that's kind of where I would start. Yeah. But, um, why did you have to ask that? Getting back to disciplining, uh, so my dad, uh, he was sort of a raiser, and he just went out of his own anger. It didn't seem like he was benefit, although sometimes we needed it. Um, but he, he was a ranger. He, you know, he really he beat us. Um, so in, in my own raising my three daughters, uh, even though I was never violent, I would still overreact with loudness and anger. Um, and so what my advice would be in the discipline process is learn to say I'm sorry as a father. Oh, yeah. Uh, that yeah. Has, Very has, important. Uh, yeah. 
maybe after I, I'll tell you about my own father. Too many people know my own father. I don't want to say, but yeah. Uh, one, I, I will say this. I'll say this. My father got into the habit of disciplining us, and then a little while later saying, "Now I want you to realize I did that because I love you." And I wonder, in part, that's to teach us. But I think I, I wonder also if it was to help him temper his temper in those moments, because I think every single father wrestles with that. What what is the appropriate level of uh, anger, if you will, to show? Yeah. From a psychological perspective, I think we should never punish him. We shouldn't, but <laughs> but I think there also needs to be some timeliness. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and and it depends on what 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 it is. Crossing the street, you got to do it right then. Yeah, you don't have to get. Yeah, I agree. Just think about every child being different. It's important. Every child is different. Every child. Yeah. One final thing. We're over time. One final thing is I, I think often the anger. I know in my own case, it was the, the sense of other people are watching me and how I raise my children. And I think that um, those of you who are, are church leaders, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel like you're being watched. Please, please try to blank that out and just focus on your child. It's hard to do, but I, I think it will really help in, because that... Thinking other people are watching you sometimes tends to ratchet up the anger that you're talking about. Okay, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.